what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Today's episode of the show is brought to you by Einswick Dog Quip, who's our good friend, Jason Furman. Good friend? Good friend. Yeah, I like him. (laughs) (laughs) So Jason, through Einswick Dog Quip, is the importer and distributor of many products, including HF Mills, Herm Springer, and he has his own line of tugs and toys and sleeves and equipment called Dogpool. Yeah, he's got a lot of stuff. Yeah, pretty much anything. If you want any dog-related training gear, talk to Jason at Einswick Dog Quip. The best way to do that is to look him up on Facebook. He can pretty much get you any dog gear you need at probably the best price that can be gotten. He's a grumpy old bastard, but he's a good bloke. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And today we have the honor and privilege of having on Skype all the way from North Carolina, Mr. Jerry Bradshaw. Yes, I'm here. Thank you. (laughs) Hey, Jerry. Welcome to the show, man. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Hey, so we've talked about you a few times on the show. We talk about PSA as much as we can. and Funny about that. Yeah, well, that's with a sport we've chosen to push like crazy. And you're the founding member, executive director, and it's really, it's your game. Well, it's actually, uh, it's actually everybody's game. I think we've come so far and, you know, in the last 10 years, you know, it, uh, it did take a bit of a struggle early on, but, uh, you know, now with, you know, everybody on the board and all the people in, uh, in all the countries that are participating and all the regions, I really feel like it's starting to gain a lot of groundswell, grassroots momentum and, and really, uh, really taking off on its merits. You know, we don't have to sell it so much as we used to uh, anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody's kind of aware of our existence. Uh, we're in the beginning, we were kind of fighting for recognition and uh, one of the things that makes me happiest is to see conversations, especially on social media, that happen where people are talking about, you know, protection sports and, you know, and including PSA in the conversations because, you know, it's uh, it's grown so much. And, you know, and at last count, we were the biggest bite suit sport in uh, North America. Awesome. We count all of our members and the amount of trials and titles awarded and things of that nature. So uh, we're pretty proud of uh, proud of all that for sure. That's awesome. So let's go back in time a little bit, Jerry. As you know, if you've heard our show before, we're big fans of origin stories about how people got started and where they began in dog training. Like what was the crowning moment for you? So if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear about when you got going, what turned you into the dark side of training dogs? Long before I got into dog training, I was uh, in training to be an academic. I was in a PhD program in economics at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And um, did not own a dog growing up, never had a dog in my life. Actually grew up quite scared of dogs. Um, I tended to get bit um, a lot. Got bit on my paper route, knocked down a flight of stairs by a a couple of dogs uh, different times when I was little. So I had a very healthy fear of dogs for a really long time. Lived next door to a gigantic 
400 pound German shepherd. At least it seemed that we <laughs> um, used to bark at me every time I left my house. I just so, did the yeah, maths on what 400 pounds was, but it took me a little while to realize you were exaggerating. <laughs> <laughs> you need a damn metric system. Yeah. So I, I, grew, I grew up scared of dogs mostly. And, uh, the turning point for me, I was in grad school and I had, uh, um, I heard some noise downstairs in my townhouse and went downstairs to find somebody standing on our air conditioning unit trying to pry their way into the house. And I managed to, uh, you know, get a broom and whack the Venetian blinds with it. This was also um, before I was a gun owner and uh, scared <laughs> him away. He, f- he fell off the, the air conditioning unit when I whacked the Venetian blinds with the, with the broom. And, um, and then the police came and long story short, they said, you know, probably best if you got yourself a dog because you keep a really crazy schedule being a graduate student. And my wife at the time also had a crazy schedule. So I looked into it, got really nervous about getting, getting a dog because I wanted to put some thought into it. We ended up uh, adopting a dog from the sh- a shelter, which we thought was the right thing to do, mm-hmm. um, to get a really strong protection dog. That was the way to go. <laughs> and uh, and so we ended up getting the friendliest, nicest, happiest little, <laughs> you know, 40-pound uh, mutt that was brown with a black face and prick ears. And, of course, you probably can predict the next step in my evolution yeah. as a dog owner was to go through the AKC breed book and find something that looked exactly like the dog that I already had that would do protection. And that's kind of how I found uh, Malinois. And I contacted a breeder in Canada. And uh, I don't know if he just felt sorry for me or, um, you know, believed that I would actually follow through on his good advice. But he said he would sell me a puppy that would not make it as a police dog and probably not make it as a sport dog. And uh, he said, but what you had to do is you have to take this dog to a Schutzen club Mm -hmm. and you have to actively train the dog and promise me that you'll do all those things. And I did. Um, and I got Stuart Hilliard's book on Schutzen training and, you know, read it religiously from cover to cover, took my, you know, my puppy that my first dog to obedience class and then took my second dog to obedience class. And, um, yeah, he turned out to be a lot of dog and I took him to the Schutzen club and, yeah, that's kind of how I got my start. So I started out as a hobbyist, really. I was still in grad school and going to my Schutzen Club and, you know, getting over my fear of dogs because there were a lot of big, bitey dogs at my Schutzen Club. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I remember when I first got my puppy, the USA Nationals was about to happen in, I think it was 19, whew, something uh, early in the 1990s. And um, <laughs> there was a, the national championship was in uh, Washington, D.C., and so I drove up there with my puppy and got to see Dean Calderon and Gary Hanrahan and the Volrath brothers and like all these like big wigs in the early days of, of Schutzen in the United States. And I'm, I'm, I remember because it was super foggy at the trial and I had my gigantic VHS recorder cam on my shoulder <laughs> uh-huh. the whole time. And I'm recording all of these dogs doing these amazing things. And I couldn't even believe what I was seeing. I couldn't believe I'd never seen dogs trained so highly, mm-hmm. you know, so it got me hooked. And, you know, I got back to Raleigh and got into a, a Schutzen club there that had, you know, a very high profile judge named Floyd Wilson in it. We had a lot of national level people in there. And I, I always tell people I got lucky when I started because I, by just the chance of being where I was, got to see my first picture of dog sport was 
the highest level of dog training at the time. And then I just fell into probably one of the best clubs in the country because I lived close. Um, and so I, I really lucked out, you know, I mean, I went there and from the moment I started in competitive dog training, the standard was super high. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything that I watched, everything I saw, you know, the uh, guys like Tim Cruiser would come from Virginia, who's, you know, national level helper and give seminars at our club. Uh, Gene England would come down and give seminars at our club because they were all friends with Floyd Wilson, the, our training director. And, you know, it was kind of pretty magical at the at the time because I, I just I had so many good influences uh, early on in my career. So I, I, I'm very grateful for the happenstance of being, you know, you know, sort of going to grad school, just where I was, it could have been, I could have been in the middle of nowhere and struggled to find anybody to help me want to train. And that's awesome. You know, and that sort of thing. Yeah. I've just realized that you and I must be in the same age bracket, Jerry, because you've mentioned Schutzen, which if you say that to millennials today, they just look at you with this cockeyed look on their face. You've said right. Stuart Hilliard, who, again, if you said that to anyone current these days, they'd look at you with this cockeyed German shepherd look. So yeah, yeah. you must be mid, mid to late forties, I'd say. Well, I appreciate the uh, beautiful guess at my age, but I'm even a little older than that. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I just I, I just happen to look really young and sexy. I appreciate that. <laughs> for, the, for the listeners, get on Facebook. We'll post, post a photo. <laughs> hey, so that puppy that wasn't going to make it, did it? Yeah, actually, um, he was one of those dogs. He was very kind of a defensive dog and uh, working dogs from that side rather than the prey side is kind of a lost art now. Mm-hmm. It's a dark art that I continue to practice. And, but I, you know, I, I understand how to work a dog from that side of the game because he didn't really have a ton of prey drive. Um, although genetically, you know, his, uh, his, his ancestors were, uh, oh, lots of ring dogs in there and, you know, very tight line breeding on, on a really, uh, really famous, uh, really famous French ring dog. But I went religiously to the Schultzen club and, I got a little impatient when he was a puppy and and got an older dog uh, as well uh, named Ben von Lohenfels, who was three, and I got him in with him and a couple of my dog purchases over the years. I got this, you know, I had a Malinois puppy and a, and a little pet dog, and then I got this three-year-old grown uh, high-powered Malinois that mm-hmm. somebody else couldn't really title. Um, they were struggling with obedience and control and protection and tracking. And like he was just a, a mess. And so I ended up getting him because he was cheap. And then I got him and I was like, I was scared of him at first when I got him, like really scared of him because mm-hmm. he was extremely intense and I wasn't yet used to having that on the end of my leash. I was pretty young uh, in the sport and kind of new to it. And people in my club had dogs like that, but I, I didn't. Uh, and so uh, I had to learn really fast how to uh, deal with that quality of, of animal and um, started, I, you know, I, I titled him and you know, got him through like IPO two, uh, got a, a 99 points with him in protection one time. Nice. And, uh, he was just a horrible, horrible tracker, which taught me lots and lots about tracking. <laughs> it also taught me, um, at one point when my puppy was old enough to give up on trying to get him through an IPO three track <laughs> or track at the time. And I just concentrated on the puppy who I ended up taking to, uh, Schutz and nationals in 1996 and came in 22nd place. And, nice. and shortly thereafter I started my business and, uh, in, in 19, uh, I started in 1994, but you know, by that time I, you know, got into my business and that started to take over and I had to leave academia you know, because I couldn't do too many things. I was finding myself 
you know, like out at the soccer fields in Chapel Hill tracking instead of working on my dissertation. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't really going to put me anywhere useful. So I made the jump and decided to get into the dog business and kind of started as a pet trainer and um, spent a lot of years really marinating in, you know, the pet space and um, also uh, doing my competition as a hobby and then started to get into the, the police dog shortly thereafter. You have your own podcast I love listening to. I was just listening to on the way out here, uh, Controlled Aggression Podcast. The timing, by the way, is perfect that you release that because Tuesday morning here, I think it comes out weekly on our Monday night, but then I get to listen to it on the way out here Tuesday morning. So you're always my, my Tuesday morning entertainment. But I've heard you talk about on there that you were actually ready to present and chose not to, to begin your PhD. Was that you were actually in the room and said, oh, fuck this, I'm not going to do it, or it was like a long, slow process you sort of came to it? Because in my head, I've built this picture, tell me if this is true or not. Like there's a panel of people, you're standing in front of them, and you go, fuck you guys, I'm out of here, and you turn around and walked out. Is it, Was it as it, cool as that? or? It pretty much was exactly that. I had, I had a, my, you know, my dissertation committee was there, assembled, and as I, as I was standing in front of them, they were, you know, they were like, okay, well, you know, defend your proposal. Mm-hmm. And I said, I actually am not going to. And just at that moment, I said, I really, I I said a few things about how graduate students get treated at that particular university. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm actually going to, um, I'm going to leave here and I'm going to go play around at golf and then I'm going to become a dog trainer. And they all looked at me like I had a horn (laughs) out of my head. And I was a little nervous uh, at the time. And then I was married. I was also married at the time. And when I came home and I told my ex-wife, um, what had happened, she just kind of stared at me. (laughs) (laughs) She was, she was also a hobbyist dog trainer at the time, but I think she was expecting that she was going to, you know, eventually be married to a a gainfully employed college professor. And that dream was uh, probably now dead. And, um, both my parents are, are high school teachers. And when I let them know what my direction was, um, they also, there was a lot of silence on the end of the phone (laughs) conversation. So I I did have a few professors reach out to me and ask me to not leave and to, um, maybe pick a different committee and, you know, go with them. And I'd already published a couple of academic papers out of my master's thesis Mm -hmm. and they thought, well, we can use two of those papers and just write, write one more and, you know, we'll knock out this PhD. And I was like, you know, like really, I wanted to do something different. Mm-hmm. And I I really felt like my time in academia had just come to a close. I, I so enjoyed teaching. I so enjoyed uh, being around students. Um, I enjoyed taking information, distilling it so other people could understand it. But I was I was losing a little bit of hope in academia because at, at least at that time when I was, um, you know, decided to make the change, the thing in academia was research, research, research over everything else. And you know, I really wanted to be a teacher and yes, you can do research as a teacher, but you know, it's really hard and in, in at the university level to just focus on being a good, a good teacher. They don't, that doesn't get rewarded grants and, mm-hmm. you know, and research do. And so I, I think in the end it was maybe I had, you know, I had a little bit of like usually in my life, good luck, um, to make the decision at the time, because I look on it now, I would be probably an associate or a full professor somewhere. And I would absolutely hate being in academia right now with the whole climate of political correctness Mm, and, you know, all that nonsense. And so I really feel like, you know, I'm, uh, I ended up in in the right place. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. You can actually tell that you've got a academic background. I've been enjoying your constant releases of your meditations, your Jerry Bradshaw oh, meditations. Yeah. yeah, I read them on a regular basis and some of them are quite profound. And 
just every now and then I've been in a sort of frame of mind and it's just like it's it was meant to be. I'll flick through Facebook and I just see something that you've written. And I think that was just, it was something that I was meant to read at the time. That's why I said it was actually quite profound. So if anybody is interested, Jerry writes down some of his thoughts every now and then and publishes them on uh, social media, which there's quite a good message in it. The other thing I was quite impressed with is that I was talking to Pat the other day about just some political things that happen in training and in relation to PSA and so forth. And Pat said, you know what, Jerry doesn't get involved in that shit. He's a lot smarter than that. He just looks at it and goes, uh, you know, kind of fuck those guys and just moves on. And uh, I, I actually, I applaud you for that, that you can have that rigidity and just move past it and not be phased by it because it takes up a lot of time and energy to combat it and respond to it. So yeah, well done, Jerry. That's awesome. I appreciate it. Like the, the whole idea of the meditations for me is it's stuff I struggle with and think about. And so mm. I write it down because it's I have to remind myself a lot of times to, to, to do those those sorts of things, you know, to look past the negativity, focus on, on the good things. You know, I, I, I know as human beings we have that, you know, I, I wrote one uh, over the weekend about negativity. And it's like we have that negativity bias as human beings. Ten good things that could happen to us in a week. And the one, you know, the one person who said, you know, you're stupid and fat on social media, that's what we're going to think about for the next, you know, day and a half. And you fucked just I try one goat. To, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I try to let that let that stuff go and focus on you know focus on what we're building and, and the positivity and I mean how we've got you know we've got a uh, you know some people get on there and you might say something negative about you know about uh, about PSA or whatever but we've got you know a national championship getting ready to happen in Canada with more dogs than we've ever had before competing at the higher levels and you know I'm pretty proud of the the growth in the organization and how it's like really started to go international and you know we've got some big plans getting ready to happen you know, in PSA, which, you know, everybody will find out about soon enough, but I have to, I have to tease that a little bit. We've got some, some big growth that's going to happen soon. And I feel like, you know, if you stay on course and do the right things and, you know, and, uh, and, and treat people with respect, you know, and, and go about things in the right way. You know, I surround myself with great people who are on our board and, you know, direct from our director of decoys, Sean Siggins to all our board members, you know, our organization is strong and I feel like I get good feedback from all of them and we make, you know, we tend to make really good decisions about the direction of the sport and what we're doing. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a, um, definitely a team effort on, on all that stuff. And, you know, you know, important to stay focused on what you're creating and not so much focused on, uh, on what other people are saying about it because their opinions don't really matter. Well, in this case, just to clarify the situation, it wasn't anyone saying anything bad about PSA. It was actually people claiming to have been involved <laughs> Much oh, more than they really were in PSA, yeah. uh, which is a cool thing to, that that even happens. You know that people yeah. are saying that they did more than they did. You know, yeah. we're talking well, about. In terms of, <laughs> I I remember early on somebody um, somebody claimed to have. Uh, uh, had a huge part in writing the rules. And I know for a fact, I sat down at a computer and wrote the whole rule book to start with. And, <laughs> so and unless you're Bill Gates, you didn't yeah. have any part. <laughs> unless you're Bill Gates, because I wrote it on a, on a, on a, um, you know, on a IBM clone. Um, yeah, it definitely, uh, that definitely was, uh, was, was me doing most of that. And of course, over the years, you know, the board of directors has had a huge influence on, on the sure. direction of the sport and the rules. And, the, you know, we've had a lot of changes from that first draft. But I, I actually do remember sitting down and writing all of that. So I, I kind of know where it all came from. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so um, let's go back a step. So you've, you tell everyone to get fucked in academia. You storm me out of the room. That's how I'm picturing it. 
uh, like I say, let the bu- yeah, let calmly, the uh, yeah, uh, okay, yeah, very calmly and self assured, and everybody <laughs> dumb, dumbfounded looks on their face. Yeah. Sounds sounds a little bit like flash dance. I'm just yeah. kind of, I can see <laughs> in front of these people, you just break into dance and say, "Well, you know, like fuck you guys, I'm dancing, I'm out of here." Doing his shoots and routine with his dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was uh, not quite that dramatic. So that's how it went in my head now. But uh, so that begins Tahil. What form did that take on from there? You just started out like keeping the sport dog side as a hobby for yourself and making money out of pet dogs. And where'd the name come yeah. from, et cetera, et cetera? Well, Tar Heel is, um, is sort of the, the name of the university I was at, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Their, um, their name is the Tar Heels. And so kind of a little bit of that, it's our, it's our, um, we're, we're called the Tar Heel State here in North Carolina. So I kind of took that on as a uh, – um, I'm a huge fan of uh, UNC basketball, um, mm-hmm. so you know that was a um, that was kind of my inspiration to uh, to to name it. And since we were located uh, right there in, in the heart of uh, North Carolina, that's how uh, that's how the name came about. Um, but yeah, I um, you know I began my journey as a pet dog trainer. The first was you know after after the 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 drama of you know telling you know my dissertation committee basically to you know to to get fucked um, and walked out. <laughs> then I was faced with the next reality was you know okay how do I make a living now? Yeah. And you know so you know pets was something I dabbled in a little bit as I was a grad student. I, you know I kept a, a little classes going on the side and 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 did some training with the Humane Society here in in uh, in, in Chapel Hill and um, you know assisted and taught some classes and that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was my, um, that was my first, uh, my first, um, tasking was to actually figure out how I was going to, to, to make some money at it. And, you know, just getting into the nitty gritty of, you know, getting the business off the ground and, you know, starting to get clientele and, you know, and all that sort of stuff was what consumed me. So I had to, I had to learn a lot of stuff. A lot of people thought because, you know, my, my academic field was economics. So they're like, oh, well, it was easy for you to start a business. And the reality is, if you know anything about academia, like economics at the graduate level is applied mathematics, basically. So, you know, I, I was great at solving, you know, differential equations and things like that. But, you know, getting a customer, not so much. So I had a lot to learn about sales and closing sales and marketing and, and the actual nitty gritty of real economics, you know, grassroots down, you know, at the at the street level economics. And it was a lot of education that I had to give myself to be able to do that. You know, I, I grew up in a family that was very they were teachers, right? So, you know, what did I try and become? I, a teacher. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you don't sometimes you don't realize it until you change course, but you know, I became what, you know, I was modeled um when I was growing up and that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, my parents were very much about get a teaching job, it's safe and you know, teach somewhere, get tenure one day, you know, you'll be safe and mm-hmm. you'll have a nice salary for the rest of your life and a pension and all that stuff. And yeah, so I think that's why they thought I was a bit crazy um and to this day. They are very proud of what I've done and my success, but I think they still think I'm a little crazy for, you know, for <laughs> unloading all of those years for dogs. But as an economist, I'm very well aware that, you know, of the sunk cost fallacy. So there's no reason to continue on doing something you don't want to do just because you put a lot of time into it. Yep. And so I decided to, to do what I wanted to do. That's awesome. So Tahil has gone from you trying to figure out a way to make some money training pet dogs to now what would be surely one of the biggest providers of police military dogs a diverse school everything from you do board and trains of pet dogs up to prepping through dogs for 
dogs and handlers to work the streets as police. You you guys don't just. I would say, say we're one of the biggest. We're probably one of the more diverse. Okay. Uh, because we have our school for dog trainers. We do, you know, we do our, um, you know, our police dogs handler courses. We train dogs for um, for DOD, um, and you know, we sell a lot of green dogs. We have we have a lot of different moving parts to the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of different income streams. We're we're building other income streams as we speak. You know, it's something that you know I think a lot about as an entrepreneur. But yeah, we're um, you know we try and be the best at what we do, and I don't really feel like you know, necessarily being the biggest is uh, is always the answer. We're sure. definitely bigger than I started. I never conceived it would be, you know, quite we would be doing quite so much and be where we are. You know, it's now twenty five years later, of course, and there is something to be said about longevity. You know, if you hang around long enough. You know what I mean, that's that's always a good thing if you can make it. You know, mm. we've been through, we've been through a, you know, like we're a company that's been through a couple of bad economic downturns. It, you know, there's a lot of, you know, if you've been in business for a long time, you understand that, you know, you really don't know how good your business model is until there's a big recession. Mm-hmm. And so we had a, a couple of small recessions, and then we had the big downturn in 2008, 2009. And we made it through that, and that was a bit of a struggle. But you know, I, I think there are a lot of people who have got into the dog business like post that recession, mm-hmm. and have been like sort of gliding on the economic conditions in the United States for the past you know ten years, and they think they've got something really sweet built. And it's like, all right, well, wait till the next downturn comes and see if you can yeah. manage your way through that, and you'll know if you've got something robust, right? So my economics training does come in handy every once in a while, you know, when it comes to that kind of stuff. Awesome. I'm really interested in, as an academic who got into dogs, what was the first step like? How did it go for you to decide, I can teach to police or I can provide dogs to police? Like without a background in that, you see so many people, and it doesn't mean they do it well, but they come out of the police or the or the military and now they're a vendor too and they're providing training back. And they've got the, it's probably easier for them to get contract because they've got the hooks already that they know the people to talk to and whatever. Sure. But for you- to come at it fresh and new and I guess prove that you're capable. How did that come about? For lack of a better, better term, you know, like I ate dog shit for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. So what I, and what I mean by that is I didn't, you know, I I didn't come out of the womb being a police dog trainer. Like I put my, I put a lot of time into first training lots of pet dogs. Like the first seven years of my business, I did all the pet training Mm -hmm. from soup to nuts. I did everything. In the period that period of time, I did start my school for dog trainers as a way to like get some extra bodies in that I didn't have to pay for yeah. to help me train some of the pet dogs, so I could do some other stuff a little bit. Um, and it turned out to be a really good business model because people got a lot of hands-on. A lot of the other dog training schools, you don't get a lot of hands-on. You bring your own dogs to the school, and that's all well and good. But you know, as we all know, you never train your own dogs for money as a pet trainer. Mm-hmm. You have to train other people's dogs. Like so, I, I think getting your hands on other dogs is a good idea. And I also spent that first, you know, 10 years credentialing myself by titling dogs. I had the really good fortune in at my time in, in my time doing Schutzen to meet a lot of people who were both really high level police officers that also did Schutzen. Like we've got, you know, there are people like I remember, you know, Tim Karchnak, who's uh, 
a big, um, you know, uh, IPO guy right now. Um, he was a police officer for a long time and his wife, and they were some of the first people I met. They were in Richie Pastuca's club. He was a police officer and an IPO competitor, well, Schultz and competitor back in the day when I started. So there were a lot of people like that. You, got, you know, presently you've got Mike Deal, who's always at the world championships. He's the canine, you know, guy coordinator for, I think, Indianapolis PD. Mm-hmm. Like, he's a big deal in the police world as well as being, you know, being a Schultz and competitor. And there were more of those guys back when I started that I was able to get involved in through my Schutzen career. So I learned a lot about police training as I was coming up in, in the ranks of Schutzen and, and doing my, you know, doing my hobby. And that's kind of how I got to the contacts and got to meet people. And, you know, and I, I spent a lot of time learning. I think what's, what's missing nowadays is people want to get born into the highest level of everything immediately. They don't have any, they don't have any patience yep, to 100%. really develop um, anything. And so they're immediately, you know, they graduate from a dog training school and they're out giving seminars and they have nothing of worth to say because they don't have any actual experience or perspective. Mm. And so I think, you know, that's, that's something I always try and tell my students is, you know, give, you know, give yourself time to be a student, give yourself time to learn things, put yourself in front of other people who know more than you yep. so that you can learn those things. And, yeah, and develop that's some really, substance. Yeah, like, you, you know, you have to get some uh, breadth, depth, and substance to what you know. Mm. And you can, you know, you can have a superficial understanding of something. And if your superficial understanding of something is, you know, deeper than somebody else's terrible understanding of something, you might have, you know, a way to communicate with them and maybe teach them something. But in reality, when you, you know, if you get in, 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 in a room full of, you know, fairly experienced canine officers who've been doing it for a long time, you have to have some perspective on things. I, and one of the best things that ever happened to me was getting the contract to do the um, in-service training for my now head police dog trainers um, department. So I got I got the contract to do the in-service training for Sean Siggins' department up in Pennsylvania. And I would try. I would literally travel seven hours every quarter for a few days, to, you know, to a week to do in-service training at his department. And you know, I learned a lot from him just about. Uh, police dogs, tactics, things like that. And I was able to teach a lot about dog training. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew the dog training side of things, but I had to learn the other side of things, the deployments, you know, and, and I always tried to, um, I always tried to put myself in a place where I could learn from a lot of people. One of the very first people, her name is Johnny Joyce, that she had a police dog training academy here. Now she's more into, show, into um, search and rescue, but she was a police officer, a canine handler. I came down to decoy work for her police dogs that she was in training. And she taught me a lot about, you know, narcotics narcotics detection and things like that. And then I got around, you know, some folks in Southern Miami and like I would, you know, there was no YouTube back then. Like, so if you wanted to see something, you had to like get in a car and drive to it to Mm. look at it. Right. So, you know, I was driving to Miami, I was driving to, you know, Pennsylvania, I was driving, you know, everywhere I could to get my eyes on what I wanted to see and spend time actually doing it. And networking and and meeting people at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and it's like it's a the grind of it is what a lot of people don't get. You know what I mean? Like nowadays you can look at a lot of videos and you think you know something. But, you know, I mean, your your hands are not deep into it. And, you know, you don't you only see what people put out there. Right. So you don't get to see the bad stuff. You don't get to see the mistakes. hundred percent. Yeah. So it's it's a little bit of a fantasy world now where people can look at stuff on the Internet and say, oh, you know, it looks kind of, you know, decoying looks kind of easy. The best of. Yeah. Until you get into Mm. until you get yourself into situations where you're kind of in over your head. Yeah. It's not, you know, like one of the things that I told the the cops at this New England Street Tactics seminar this past week was, 
like when you're in training, be an idiot, make your mistakes there, like get in over your head, push your boundaries, like things like that. And I think that's where a lot of people don't get into the critical stuff when they start right now. Like they want to be, they want to be so deep into it and be the immediate expert that they never give themselves time to marinate in the, in the, in the substance of our profession, which is very deep. There's a, there's a lot of people who have very deep and abiding knowledge of lots of things then you have to you have to put yourself in those positions to shut your mouth and and be a student and learn and take in and i think that's where a lot of people fail nowadays is they, they don't give themselves enough time especially when they're starting out to do that mm. everybody wants to be the instantaneous expert you know it's like um some podcasts i listen to um i don't know if you listen to him his name is gary v and he has this um thing where he talks about 22 year old life coaches on Facebook. Mm-hmm. He's like that, you know, that, that makes me laugh, you know, like you have yeah, life of your head. You, yeah. Yeah. You haven't even really lived that long and you're going to be coaching other people on how to live, you yeah, know, like, yeah. you know, go through some hard times, go through a recession, a couple of divorces and then get back to me about coaching me. online. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a good example of that just from the guys that work for you. Like there's a lot of Facebook famous or Instagram famous dog trainers that really are just a surface. Right. And then when I was at Tar Hill to my decoy set, I was cruising around with Ben and I was like, holy fuck, this kid is legit. Like, and he just works for you. Like he's not out trying to be anyone special. You know what I mean? But I was like, this guy is fucking beyond excellent at doing what he's doing. He's not an Instagram model of dog training, you know? Yeah. No, like he, you know, Ben's a kind of head down, grind it out, you know, get stuff done. Sean's the same way, you know, like you, you go to a, you, like you go to a seminar or do a handler course or whatever and, you know, get instruction from these people and you're going to get like, a, you know, surprisingly for somebody so young, you're going to get a lot of deep knowledge. Mm. You know, he is in a very short period of time really become not so much a, a student trainer anymore is like a, a full fledged colleague, you know, to bounce ideas off of. And, it, and it's nice, like especially when we have PSA club. He's a very creative trainer. He's got a lot of things going on in his head. He spends a lot of time learning. He listens. He pays attention. Um, and and we're able to to talk about things. And you know, he's able to run sessions for people that you know people who've got ten more years of experience may not be able to do. And then you've got people like Sean who've got you know twenty years experience being a canine handler. You know, and uh, and being a you know probably about you know eighteen years. He started when we started PSA, being a you know sport decoy. And he's probably one of the best that I've ever seen in a suit. And you be around these guys a long time. And, you know, that one of the things I look for and I always tell people when I hire them is I'm not necessarily looking for the most experienced people. I'm looking for some of the smartest people that I can mm-hmm. find, like people who really want to study this thing, really want to get deep with it and, you know, and, and, and want to be you know, at some level, you know, a, um, an expert in the field, but, you know, are willing to give themselves the time to do those things, you know, the, the time to really marinate on it. And, you know, like Ben got his PSA two this past, uh, couple of months, he got it uh, at regionals, I think, and mm-hmm. he was going to be competing at nationals. And we've got another, you know, another trainer at, uh, at, um, Tar Hill that's going to decoying at nationals and, you know, and Sean's decoying at nationals. He's our head, head decoy or a head police dog trainer. Yeah, and and then, you know, we've got another I've got another trainer that's um, that's uh, showing at nationals in level 1. So, you know, we really put a lot into our club, we put a lot into our training, um and 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 we get a lot out of it, you know, mm-hmm. I think you know, it's it's something thing where we've got to have a commitment excellence and I feel like that's one of the hallmarks of what we do is we're trying, you know, always 
put our best foot forward to give the best product to our customers as well as to continue that learning on our own. Like when new ideas come out or things come out, we, we toss them around, we give things a try, we experiment. And that to me is the fun part of dog training. Like, you know, mm-hmm. there are a lot, of, as you well know, there are a lot of dog trainers that have, you know, a methodology they've been doing for a certain number of years and, and they never deviate from it. And that would bore me to death. So I like to experiment. I like to play around with things. Sometimes it doesn't work, right? But you always learn something from those occasions where it doesn't work, right? And yeah. that's, that's that's the fun part of dog training is, you know, is figuring out problems and, and getting deep into, you know, what you're doing. And that's, you know, that's what we love to do uh, at our place. So from the, the people training side, not just the dog training side, at Tahill, you run, you have like set courses, right? But you also do bespoke stuff. So if someone were to say, hey, I've got six weeks and I want to learn just pet dog stuff, you can do that. Or I want to do just suit work for six weeks. You can arrange that, right? You know, like a lot of a lot of people say, yeah, we'd love to. Uh, I want to come down and just get bit for you know twelve weeks, and we're like, okay, so, <laughs> we got the dogs. You know, here, here's two trailer full of dogs that have to go out there and training for police dogs or military dogs, and yeah. then we've got uh, you know probably about twelve or, or fifteen club dogs that would you can get murdered on as much mm-hmm. as you want. Yeah, we've you know we uh, we do you know we do pet training, we do um, detection training, do a lot of detection training, we do. Um, green dog sales, all that stuff. And students can come and, and see the business from all perspectives. You know, like we're, we're just a non-broadcasted reality show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if anyone's listening and wants to change that, that would be cool. I'd watch that. I don't necessarily know that'd be a good idea. Um, (laughs) You get to actually, uh, you get to actually really see, you know, the business from all angles, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, they meet our clients, they, you know, they get to meet the cops that come in and are testing dogs and, you know, see what that looks like. They get to be around if you're a civilian that's going through the, you know, the six month, you know, master trainer course, you can spend some time, you know, shadowing Sean's handler course and and see him teaching the, you know, the police officers getting their new dogs and things like that. So you really get a, a behind the scenes look at everything. And, and, you know, I talk a lot about business. I will talk as much about business and how I think about it as students want. Like they can make one-on-one appointments with me and say, I want to talk over my business plan or here's what I'm thinking about doing. Here's the direction I'm thinking about going. And, you know, we'll go over that stuff with them and, you know, give them some advice about that. And when I first started the school for dog trainers, one of the things that somebody said to me was, why do you want to train your competition? And I said, I don't want to train my competition. I want to train people to cooperate with. Mm-hmm. And so I do lots of business with my students, right? We, you know, maybe it's, you know, I sell them dogs or they have dogs uh, that I can buy from them. We do business deals together. Like there's, there's a lot of, co- I, I always look at it from the standpoint of cooperation. You know, is it possible I might lose out on a seminar or lose out on a dog sale to one of my students? Yeah, it's possible. But what I get back in cooperation and what I get back in network and things like that is so much deeper and and broader than thinking on the surface just about, you know, just about the um, the competition aspect of it. In all the years that I've been involved in dog training, that's probably one of the most intelligent responses I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that. So uh, I, you know, I'm I, serious. I, I mean I, that from the heart of... I know people are are cooperative, but I think that on a general basis, when you're raising the bar and when you're actually teaching students to have a, a better standard and developing better guidelines and cooperation together, hats off to you, man. I think that's awesome. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and I, I try and I try and live that all the time. Like when, you know, when I have students that are starting businesses and things like that, like if they say, hey, you know, I, I want to set up a seminar and do something in my area to draw some interest. Like, you know, I flew out to Vancouver and spent some time with my friend Aaron Kemp out there when he started his business. He was a great student to uh, spend a, a little bit, a, a lot of time actually at Tar Heel as an intern and so forth. And like, you know, he did a lot of things for me. And so I went out there and was happy to, you know, put together, help him put together a seminar and get contacts out there for him and, and do things like that. And I, I do that when I travel to South Africa and things of that nature. So I, I try and do that with my students as much as possible because, you know, they give a lot to me in terms of, you know, they go out, they're successful, they represent Tar Heel very nicely. And, you know, and so I, I try and give them time on the phone, give them time on social media if they have questions and direct message me, I answer them myself. I try, I try and give all my students a lot of that. And then, in, you know, in return, they do a lot of things for me. And so that cooperation is a, is a big part of a big part of how I view what I do. Like, I, I don't just do I'm not just doing all this for the money. Right. Like, if I, you know, I could have gone into a financial career that probably would have netted me a lot more money in the end. If that was my end goal, what I'm really what I was really looking for was a way to parlay my experience as a teacher Um, because I love teaching. And so I get to still do that. I'm just teaching a different subject matter. Mm -hmm. Um, But but also I like have an impact on people's lives. I think there has to be some deeper meaning to what you do in life. And if you have like a lot of people tell me, well, I don't understand how people can be pet trainers. It's so boring and stuff. And I say, you have such a meaningful and deep impact on these people when you when you saw their dog problem and, and and all of a sudden that dog goes from being a complete nuisance and probably you know on it you know on his you know, you know last strike before he goes to the to the shelter and, and probably euthanasia and you make that a happy home you make it so they can go out hiking you know you make it so that the kids can enjoy the dog and the dog is not the focus of all their problems every day like that is that to me like that kind of stuff is huge so i see what my pet dog trainers do i see what my students do and they when they get that satisfaction from success, uh, no matter if you're training a police dog and he puts away a rapist or he puts away a, um, a violent felon, you know, we get a lot of joy. You know what I mean? When we get the, the, the text from one of our police officers telling us that they've done something good for society, right? Like mm-hmm. that's important mm-hmm. to me. And the same thing, you know, and, and it goes all the way down to the pet trainers and the impact they have on people's lives. And, you know, people come to our, my school and they say, you know, well, you know, this is, and now I'm doing something that's meaningful to me that I love doing. I'm out of the corporate world. Like I get a lot of people that do what I did, which was I'm going to get out of some other job that I've been pigeonholed into and do, do something I love. And they get to do that, and, and it's uh, it's a very exciting thing to see people be able to do what they love to do. And I have a very small part in their success. And I always tell people, it's up to you, man. Like you, you know, you can get your start here and go out there, but you got to work, you got to grind, you know, you got to keep your head down for a while before you pop it up and start spouting off your all the shit that you know until you really know some shit. Yeah. And then once you do that, you know, like then you're, you know, then you're in a place where you can have an impact on other people. And I think when it, that was what it boils down in the end, I think, to all of us is, you know, we want to get up in the morning and have a meaningful life and be able to say, look, I can't wait to get in in the morning. You know, you're going to deal with some people that are ungrateful. You're going to deal with some people that are difficult. You're going to deal with some customers that you just want to strangle. But at the end of the day, more often than not, if we 
you know, put that negativity bias to the side and say, really, what did we accomplish in, in our last six months? Well, we had a, a big impact on people's lives, you know, and a lot of people, sometimes people will tell you this as a pet trainer or as a police dog trainer, or, you know, as a, even a sport dog competitor, where somebody gets out there and, you know, they take a dog that maybe didn't have a whole lot of possibilities and you can help them develop that dog and have, have a meaningful relationship on the field. And for some of them, it's just getting out there and getting a title for other people. It might be getting out there and winning a national championship mm -hmm. and whatever that goal is. If you help them achieve those goals, I feel like you're doing something really important, right? No matter, you know, no matter what, you know, what it is. Your work in India is really a pretty good example of that, right? Like for a country that's gone from, you know, not exactly being well known for mm -hmm. high level dog training, have now got some really good fucking dogs and really good trainers that I follow on, on Facebook. And you're responsible for their first ever civilian sport dog trial? They, they had no dog sport culture whatsoever there, yeah. right? So I had, you know, when I first got there, you know, well, I'll back up just a little bit. I started getting these these emails from these guys in India mm -hmm. and they're like doing some dog training. And so like they sent me videos and they had like no real equipment. So they would do dumb shit like wrap newspapers around their arms with duct tape and yeah. then, you know, put on a sweatshirt and give dogs bites. And they'd be like, what do you think about this? And I'd be like, holy shit, that's scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I was like, wow, they're like, they're, that's the, that's the, that's the beautiful side of social media is they're able to like watch some things on social yeah. media and be like, well, we're going to try this out. We're going to play with it. We're going to mimic it. But then what they did was they said, well, we're going to send our videos to some, you know, some people who have some knowledge in the, in, in the field and not just me, but other fairly high profile dog trainers have been to India mm -hmm. in, in the intervening time. And I think Jeff Riccio is there like right they, now, right? Uh, Jeff's right there right now doing yeah. a seminar. I mean, um, you know, there have been there have been tons of really good trainers that have gone there. But like they had usually most of the foreign countries we go to at least have like a, a bit of a IPO um, mm -hmm. sport culture there, dog sport culture there. But the, with that one, there was nothing. And so the first PSA trial we had there, you know, where people are getting PDCs, mm -hmm. they were, you know, like so ecstatic that they're, you know, able to go from basically zero civilian side dog training knowledge to actually, you know, getting a, a PDC on a dog. And, you know, we've got dogs, um, we got the India trial coming up in December and we got dogs, you know, going for their level twos and level ones and things like that. It's pretty exciting to see that maturation evolution of not just that, but the, the decoys and their growth and all that stuff. And, you know, it's, it's cool to, it's cool to watch all of that take place in places where there's not a lot of that going on. Yeah. It really, it really gives you like, you know, when you can do that kind of stuff where like they have an import ban on dogs there. Right. So like they're, everything is from the grassroots. Like they are breeding their dogs. They're raising them from puppies. You know, they don't have access to the greatest bloodlines in the world. Like I'm, I always tell, I always tell my students and, and people at Tar Heel, I'm like, you're, you're all spoiled. You're spoiled as hell because mm -hmm. you get to see some really nice dogs that come in from Europe. You get to see our trainers that have selected and trained some really nice dogs. Like you go, you know, you, you go someplace like that where you can't, even if you wanted to import a really nice dog, like you, you can't, right? So you have to take what's there, train it up, do the best you can with it. Over time, you know, yes, of course, some dogs have kind of, you know, come into into the country and snuck in various ways, let me say. <laughs> <you know? laughs> but like they really have grown it from the ground up. Yeah. And then at the last time I was there, 
the, one of the uh, people people that's high up in their military dog training program came out to one of the seminars and had the chance to you know to get to meet him and yeah so yeah there's there's and, and they want to do more pop, public private partnerships they understand they need a dog sport culture to support all the stuff they want to do with their police dog programs and their military working dog programs and so they want to have more of that and so I, to have a little bit of an impact on that and I just say just a little bit but to have a little bit of an impact on that is very exciting for me to, to know that people are, are doing some of that stuff, you know, because, you know, maybe I, I gave them a little kickstart. That, that's very interesting what you just said, that in India, the police and military realize they need a dog sport culture in order to feed for them, to keep them going. We're facing almost the opposite here, right? Where mm. government is trying to make it as hard as possible to be involved in, in dog sports and make it as basically trying to force it out very slowly. And uh, there's right. a bit of a division between the government agencies and civilians I would say it's improved, but it's never really gotten off the ground very well. When it, when there's a real potential for both government department and a civilian agency to work well together, uh, like you you have established and many other people in America have established. Even speaking to one of the local law enforcement groups the other day, I was talking about the Tar Heel model and they said, holy shit, we've got nothing like that. And I said, yeah, but that's because there's always resistance to do and develop things like that where there's civilian money and uh, government agencies can actually come together and they can formulate something remarkable. Yeah, I think um, I think if you look at it from the standpoint of Europe, for example, and how well developed their police dog programs are over mm-hmm. there, say they're spoiled because you've got yeah. all those reading programs over there. You, you know, you can go and you, know, you can go and se- select. You know, whether you know you're, if you're the French military or the, the, uh, mm-hmm. a, a German, you know, SWAT operation. You know, they're for their federal police. Like you know, you have the pick of so many um, high quality dogs that you look at, right? Mm-hmm. And then you go someplace like Australia or India or something like that, and then, you know, and, and it's like. Well, who do you think is breeding all these dogs? Yeah. You know, I like always I always tell people like sometimes police officers in America think that there are these police dog kennels in Europe that are yeah, like yeah. breeding police dogs and I'm like no they're you know, like they're they're breeding dogs for final use but it's sport dog people are basically getting them and raising them and maybe they sell them or yeah. you know they may you know raise one up while they're training their sport dog knowing they're going to sell it to a vendor or whatever we you know we all know fairly well if you've been in the game for a while know what the model is but like if you don't have that going on if you don't have that huge dog sport culture it's like people ask me all the time well why do you get your dogs from europe well it's because the dog sport culture over there is huge and there's breeding and you know there's demand for the dogs all over worldwide but if you don't have civilians doing the breeding mm-hmm. then you're never going to have enough dogs or the, the dogs that you need yeah um, and we're going through the same thing here in the states where the government is starting to realize hey wait a minute you know we're buying all our dogs from europe maybe we should have more breeders in the states producing dogs and yeah yeah, I mean, as the demand for dogs goes up, you know, what I mean, like it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna make it so that people are going to want to do more of that. The tough part about about here in the states is we're so big, you know. So, you know, you can have you can have a litter of puppies, and they're all sold by the time they're you know eight weeks old. Holding them back, training them for a little while, yeah. all that stuff. That, that's tough to commit to doing that stuff, you know. Yeah. So I think it's um, it's ultimately about having a great dog sport culture, public-private partnerships. You see them; they're huge in Europe, right? You have all these pr- private companies that are doing, you know, airport screening with dogs and things like that, and coming up with you know neat, interesting ways to use dogs in in, in those uh, venues. Now we're just starting to see that 
again, you know, we're always late to the party, America, you know, it's like, hey, wait a minute, maybe we should have some, you know, private companies do some screening and do cargo screening. And that's starting to take off now. And they're realizing, you know, that gov- centralized government can't do everything. Well, and if America is late to the party, I think Australia is the one we didn't that even get come invited. to the door that just get rejected <laughs> when they get there. We didn't even get invited. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I agree. And it's something that frustrates me a lot. I think that when we look at that European model, it's we need it here. That's like symbiotic culture between the mm. dog sport clubs and the, the police end users. They like each really can't exist without the other. And you need police in the clubs. Like, you know, that guy who's takes his job more seriously, say like your Siggins to style, right? So he works his job on the street, but then he has another dog or same dog or whatever that he is in more interested in sport and stuff with. So he's in a club right. as well. And you need those guys to lend protection. And I feel like governments worldwide, again, should allow people and motivate them to have that little side hustle of like breed a litter a year and yeah. sell them and don't make that so hard for people to do. And then you need a, a civilian proofing ground for those dogs because otherwise, like the average breeder, like I could name a few here in Australia that breed nice dogs, but they don't do anything with those dogs themselves. They've got a couple of good ones. So you need people like me who will take a puppy, raise a puppy, whatever, put it on the field and see whether your dog's got what it's got before the police waste any money buying one of your dogs that are totally unproven. So it's a system. We need those breeders. We need the sport competitors and all of that feeds into the end user. But it's very difficult to explain that to people, you know, and uh, or to have brass understand that. I think the stupidest thing that we've got, not just in, a, in Australia, but as a collective across the world is we've got government departments or ministers who are trying to validate themselves and a population that allows it to happen. Because of that, we're looking at anti-progress instead of absolute progress or good sort of symbiote relationships like Pat just mentioned, and which a lot of European ventures have managed to get a better collaboration together. We just don't seem to be able to get that off the ground. Yeah, it's tough. Like, when I gave my keynote to this um, to this uh, audience of canine handlers this past week, the first thing I said to him, I said, is when you know when I started in business, I could barely get like a subscription to a police canine magazine mm. or even attend a police canine conference. We had a lot of civilians auditing that particular conference, and I said, and now you have college professor of economics giving your keynote address, right? <laughs> so, like, how far have we come? Yeah, it, it's easy to get awesome. hung up on. It's easy to get hung up on what's not happening, Negativity right? Bias. But if you, know, if you look at over, the, like for me at least, our last twenty-five years, like breaking into this business, to me in the beginning was so hard. I, you know, I had I had to have so much determination because I got rejected so much because I was a civilian because I hadn't been a cop, and you know, you know, I always kept up the mantra like, yes, there's there's stuff I need to learn. And I was lucky because I, I ran into guys like Siggins, guys like Sean Edwards that were, you know, really, really high quality police dog handlers. Like they really handled their dogs on the street. Mm-hmm. They did a lot with them. They always wanted to learn more. They were the one percenters. And so, like, I had a lot of people like that early on in my life that I got to meet. Um, they taught me a ton of things. And and but it both went both ways. I taught them a lot about dog training because I, you know, I got my start in sport and I, I learned a lot of things about just training dogs. And so that, like you said, that symbiosis means a lot. Um, I also, you know, I also know that, you know, when those guys are around and they're talking about certain things, you know, with, 
regard to their experience of, of working a dog on the street, that's when I shut my mouth and I let them talk. Mm. And, and I think, we, you know, everybody kind of has to know where they fit into the to the process. I've got a lot of things that I can offer when I go to a police dog seminar. Some people, you know, some people have said to me before, well, you know, a civilian shouldn't be teaching tactics. And I'm like, well, I can tell when a police dog handler, you know, is kneeling down and somebody's got a gun over their head on a line of sight and they pop up and put their head in front of the muzzle, I can tell them that's bad, right? <laughs> I can tell them, don't stick your head around a door frame. Like, because yeah. once you put, we all know, like once you put a dog in somebody's hands, all of a sudden they have to keep their eyes glued on it and watch it work all the time. And it's like, those are things that I can actually teach without too yeah. much difficulty. Don't take away your backup's <laughs> ability to back you up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just like stop standing in front of them. Right. You know, like those are those are like those are things that I've learned over the years by watching. It's not rocket science. It's not differential equations, but it is born of experience. Like you see that stuff, you know, when when you actually do it. But like one of the things I said also to that audience was it's very easy to go through a career where you might be working in a place that, you know, is maybe not a very high volume call place. You might be a cop for six or seven or eight or nine years and just be lucky. Mm-hmm. In other words, you've got bad tactics, you've got really bad training, you know, maybe you've had a few apprehensions. You can say, hey, my on my resume, it says I was a canine handler for seven years at this department, which is close to this, you know, place where we had, there's a, a lot of crime and, um, you know, but maybe not really there and say, well, you know, I've got experience as a canine handler. Well, maybe your experience is crappy. Maybe you didn't really handle a dog very well. Maybe you didn't have, do as much as you possibly could have, right? So, you can and you can have bad tactics and just get lucky and not get shot and say, well, you know, I was a cop, therefore I can teach tactics. I'm sorry, there are a lot of cops out there who shouldn't be teaching tactics because they have bad tactics. I mm-hmm. see it when I do seminars. But by the same token, there are a lot of civilians out there who don't take the time to really learn what they need to learn, and then they get in front of cops and say a bunch of dumb shit, and then they're like, well, you know, this guy's not really worth listening to, and then that. And that creates more of that divide. But I have to say, like when I first began, it was so big, it was so wide. I never thought it would really, you know, get to that point where, you know, civilians were collaborating a lot more. And, and probably about, you know, seven or eight or nine years ago, I saw more of it happening. And then I was like, well, we're on we're on a good trajectory here. Mm. And you know, everybody has to stay in their lane to a certain extent. But at the same time, I think there's a lot that we can give to each other and help each other out with. And and the more we collaborate, just like with my students, the more collaboration there is, the better. The more we learn from each other the better yeah i don't think it's so much that we've got resistance within the agencies themselves i mean it's uh, certainly several of the people i spoke to are keen for more collaboration and more uh, trading of ideas it's it just seems to be a governmental sort of issue where somebody is just making poor decisions and handing them down and you can see frustration on both ends people oh, yeah. people want it like they're saying you know we want to do it we want to we want to work with you we want to grow with you we want to trade ideas we want to come to conferences we want to we want to be able to attend training together and go to seminars together etc cetera, etc cetera. but as i said there's somebody trying to validate their position who knows why because as i said it's not progression it's complete opposite yeah, I, I think I think one of the big things that I've seen over, you know, I've, again, uh, having some longevity in, in the business, giving me some perspective. And what I've seen is as a lot of the, you know, the people who had that mentality aged out of the department and some of those younger guys that started in, they were like, hey, I'm learning stuff from these, you know, these other people. I want to keep doing that. As they started to get into the supervisory positions, then that's when it started to change a little bit more in the United States. Like you started to see some of that kind of thing happen. And and, and then you, you then you see more, you know, more people saying, hey, 
I want to learn some things from, you know, from these people who are mm. not maybe traditionally the people that we would, you know, have in for, you know, for a seminar. That's, I think you're right, Jerry. That's really the only way to combat it is longevity in that department in just staying there and dealing with the frustration for a period of time until you can actually start making some decisions and changes and choices of your own. Yeah, I mean, as you well know, anything in government is difficult. There's lots of inertia, mm-hmm. and you know, and, and once you know, once you uh, move beyond some of that, and in uh, you know, people, I always look at it this way: like the grassroots, you know, movement is what it is. Like when I started PSA, everybody said, "Oh, it's too hard. Nobody's going to want to do it," you know, and you know, it'll never survive. And I said, "Well." I'm going to set the bar high. We're going to write the rules to where it's going to be really challenging for everybody. And I said, I really believe people will respond to that challenge. And it took a while, right? It took a while. It was, it was tough. There was some tough sledding in the first, you know, five or six years of PSA. But as things evolved and changed and, and therefore we got more highly talented people being attracted to the sport, they realized how much fun it was. And, you know, and then all of a sudden now, you know, now you see a lot of people gravitating to it. And because it's hard, I think one of, you know, I've talked about this with some of my friends in IPO who I won't name because I don't want to get them in trouble. But, you know, they like they'll they'll say things like, well, the train, the quality of the training is outstripping the sport of IPO. And therefore, then they worry about things like what's your hand position when you come to a halt yeah. and, and how, you know, and have to rely on you for getting to put your hands back at your side, you know, uh, so they can, you know, take a half point off or a point off or something like that to separate people because the actual exercises aren't that hard to train to a high level. And, and then, you know, and then what, that's where the politics comes in and you feel like people are, you know, giving scores and that's good. I always tell people like there'll be a time in PSA where we have to make, make the rules a little bit harder. Right. Mm-hmm. But Beautiful thing about that is we don't have to go through some ancient body. Have to go through the FCI to do it, right? Mm. Like people pushed it in the beginning for me to affiliate PSA, you know, through AWDF into FCI, and I was like, no, I don't want any masters. I want us to be able to do do what we want. So we decide our rules are getting too easy. You know, we can change some things up. We can, you know, we can we can make it harder, mm-hmm. right? Whereas in IPO, like you, you know, you just can't you just can't like you know come in one week and say, you know what, you know, let's add another exercise to to the you know IPO three. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that would take acts of so many different congresses and so many European countries. Probably it would be unsustainable. But what you can do is you know change the little tiny things here and there. You know, and and that's where the frustration comes with that sport a little bit. People want to get back to the sport that they knew when you know like. I was I was first started in it. It was it was a lot different. Mm-hmm. There wasn't so much worrying about little tiny details of dumb shit. There was more about it was more about the the dog. It was more about are we you know we're a breed test for our for the German Shepherd and us Malinois people wanted to kind of get into it too, right? And they were begrudgingly let us get into it and they made fun of you for having a Malinois back then, <laughs> you know. You know, now things have you know changed so dramatically, right? Yeah. You've got you've got just as many Malawi people in IPOs, you have Dreamer Shepherd people, but you know, the reality is you know, the sport is a, was a great sport when I was in. I loved it, and then it started to change and change and change and change and change, and the politics kind of took over, and now everybody's fighting about it. Yeah, at least in PSA, you know, we can say, hey, if we want to modify some rules or change some rules, we can. We can switch out some surprise scenarios. We can do some different things. Yeah, you know, we can go back to making the two a little bit more difficult in the obedience that we want to. We have the ability to make those 
those changes and the board of directors has the you know, the ability to do that stuff. And so we have a lot more control over the things that we're doing. I think it's kind of nice to, to have, have, have that. And, and we listen to our members, you know, like we mm-hmm. allow them to bring things to our regional directors and bring things to the directors and, you know, and they'll come in and say, Hey, you know, here's something we, you know, we were thinking about maybe a rule change that's necessary or a safety issue or something like that. So one of the things I love about PSA is I, th- I think I speak for a lot of people, but certainly myself is that the goal is to get to the threes and pass rather than get a perfect score in a one, which I like. I mean, that's one of the things like IPO I have a lot of respect for. I, I can watch it and see all the, the, the subtleties and I'm always so impressed by it. But if my dog can see it, I'm happy that he can see it. Like if he, if he sits under extreme distraction, that's what I want. I don't want the perfect sit. Sometimes I want to sit 100% of the time and applying that to other exercises. And I think that's what I love about the sport. But I think when you unpack that a little bit, that leads to why people in PSA really talk about they compete. You're competing against the game, not each other. Because of course, there's a winner. There's a person that gets the highest points and there's a person that gets the lowest points. But People are just trying to fucking pass. It takes a village to <laughs> yeah. raise that dog, yeah. Yeah, like, and, and, 100%. like, at our last trial here, uh, as a girl, Georgie, that in the PDC got a higher score than me. And we made a big joke and we all laughed about how, like, she got a higher score. But I was fucking stoked that she passed because, you know, I did all the suit work for that dog. We changed that dog over from IPO to PSA in less than 10 sessions, like, we, because that's all we had together, right? So, I was really <laughs> proud of that. Like, I was like, that's a fucking awesome achievement. And we both got okay scores, nothing crazy, but it was just that we passed and now we're, we both get to go to the next level together and move forward together rather than like, oh, fuck you, you, you didn't, you weren't there. And and I think that the involvement of having to have so many people to train a dog, like, I've, you know, I watch how you train, you've always got Stephanie on the back line, but then you've got, so that's two people, then you've got at least once you pass the, the one, you need two decoys to be harassing you at all times. So now you're at four people, right, right, as a minimum to train the dog. So it's cooperative. You just have to be cooperative because if you're an ass, that's what I, I like very much about the sport is that if you're an asshole and won't, don't play with people, you can't do well, right? You have to have people who are willing to give up their time to give to you in order to train your dog. And everybody that I encounter is willing to do that, right? Like you, yeah. and so that's what you, you're sort of forcing people into being cooperative because if you're not, you just can't, you can't train. A hundred percent. And, you know, I, I think for, for me, when we, like when we go out there and we have a club night and, you know, I give my, I give my decoys so much props, you know, from Sean and to, to Ben, Stefan, Alex, we got a couple of you know new decoys that are that are um, in the club now, Luke and and all these like these guys put so much, it puts so much effort out for you whether it's you know running around with the suit on and obedience and being a, a distraction for we got so many higher level dogs in our our club you know being the distraction for those dogs and taking the time to you know to be there for you and you know even if it's just you know, getting in a couple of extra sessions during the week and, you know, say, Hey, will you, you know, come out and throw a suit on and catch yeah, It's not easy, man. Mm. It's not like you can, you know, you gotta have this, you gotta ha- have your dog behave around decoys and things like that. So you gotta have decoys on the field and obedience too. You know, it's not like you can just train by yourself a lot of times and then yeah. just go out to club and do bite work. So there's a lot to be, a lot to be said for the level of cooperation and not just that, but like the input from the, you know, from your other trainers, you know, we're constantly talking about things and you know, how we might change some 
things and taking you got to be willing to take some advice from other people who have different perspectives on watching you work your dog because there's always another mountain in front of you like like you get through your pdc with your dog and and then you have the, the one you get through with that and you're like okay now Ooh, I got a lot of stuff to get ready for for the twos. And then once you get through your twos, you feel really accomplished. And then you realize, wow, there's so much stuff I have to work on for yeah. my level threes. And, yeah. you know, you, you know and, and then there, but there's always another mountain in front of you. And even if you do well and you want to go to nationals and, you know, compete at a high level, there's so many things to work on. There's always something to, to be challenging you. There's always something that goes wrong in your training and some, something that's out of whack, out of balance. There's so much discrimination your dog has to do in PSA. Yeah. Uh, right. The command discrimination where, you know, in other sports, you can rely on context. Yeah. Like I remember I remember telling one of my IPO friends, I said, what if they made this one rule change in IPO, which was you could show up there that day and they say you have to do your blind search and it has to end in a passive bite. And the dog has to do the blind search, <laughs> come around to the blind and just blast the dude. Right. But he have to have one command for that and one command for the hold and bark. Right. And and like they just look at me like I'm like I'm stupid. But I'm like, <laughs> that's what we do with PSA. Like I might have to send my dog over a jump, you know, to a guy who's you know, half sitting in the front seat of a car with the door open and it could be a bite. It could be a hold and bark. I might have to down him when he gets there. Like there could be, I might have to call him off from that. There could be like so many discriminations he has to make. And, you know, most of the time we can't let context dictate those things. Otherwise we're sunk. Mm -hmm. That's where you see a lot of failure in PSA is, it, you know, a dog just gets out there, gets a little in overdrive, you know, and gets a little uncapped. And then all of a sudden he's doing something, you know, he bites instead of holding and barking when you're supposed to or whatever. And uh, that's, that's, you know, that's the fun in the sport is got to, you know, you got to keep that, th that stuff in balance at all yeah. times. And then you get away from it for a little while and then you realize, oh, it's back out of balance. And I got to go back and work on that. And, yeah. you know, and all those little tiny details are so um you know so extraordinary to constantly be focusing on then add into that if you've got a tough dog like a hard dog you've got a dog with a mix of temperament characteristics like somebody might find the level two a little bit easier and then all of a sudden that dog gets into level three and it's like well he gets way overstimulated when four decoys are on the field running around him right and you got to like bring that under control there's you know so many things that dictate success in that sport yeah. from the genetics of the dog to the pressure they have to take and things of that nature so it's good for the longevity of the dog as well that it's so changing it's that like you never really finished so right. I, I like that you know, if you were just raising dogs to sell and you wanted to put a standard on them, you could do a PDC or a one. You know, my dog was 18 months old when he did the one and got through. So it's still plenty of work left in that dog. He can go to an agency, be sold, whatever. And I can say, this is the benchmark. He's reached, I, this is the best I can do as a civilian. I've proved to you that he's got a PSA level one. But if you're like in the case where I've got like, that fucker will compete until his body falls apart because I'll never, I'll never be able to go, no, I'm hundred percent sure he'll complete the test. Never, ever, ever will I be able to say that at, at any level, really. You can pass and then go out another time and, and fail. And, you know, like to me, you know, you can, you put in so much work and then, you know, maybe, maybe some, something happens. You don't, you don't pass where you pass before, you know, you have to get two legs, like in PSA two. So like you get a leg and then, you know, you go out for your next one and you think you're going to sail through it and then you fail. Yeah. And 
for a minute you're mad, you know, probably at yourself a little bit. I mean, you didn't anticipate something, you didn't train enough for something or let something, you know, ride too long thinking it was okay. And then, then you go back to it and you're like, oh, man, you know, they, I'm constantly being taught lessons by the sport. Mm-hmm. And that's where I, that's where I like, I enjoy it. Like after the first five minutes of failing, you know, where I'm mad, you know, cause I don't like the outcome. Yeah. And then I start reflecting on it and thinking about it. And I'm like, okay, well that was my fault for how many reasons? A bunch, yeah. you know, there's things I didn't do. There's things I didn't prepare for, or I just, or I tried to prepare for that portion of the test and it was a little harder than I anticipated. And my dog, you know, didn't, you know, I didn't do enough of, of the work. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so like you said, there's always something more to do. And that's, to me, that's, that's fun. Yeah. There's so many, yeah. like one of, one of, my friends who's doing some PSA and, and they're very high level IPO competitors. Uh, when she first started training for some of the PSA behaviors, she sent me a, a, a direct message. She was like, there's so many behaviors. And I'm like, yeah, no, right. Like there's a lot of protection behaviors that you have to play with. Yeah. There's so much, there's so many things to do. And that's, and to me, that's kind of the fun of it is there's so much to do. There's always something to work on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You never finished. I think that goes on to the, the police dog side of things too, you know, where I think you're, you know, I think we need to set that bar higher, you know, on, on that side. And, you know, I've said that before to a lot of police dog handlers is, you know, we have these certifications that are not street standards. We have these certifications that are, are kind of like low standards. And, you know, we've got to set the – we don't incentivize improvement. Like I, I mentioned this also at that conference. I said if you don't incentivize improvement, then you're going to incentivize always being at a basic level of competency. And I think that's the difference is we have to – in sport, we incentivize improvement. Like you get your IPO1, you got to go to IPO2. You get your IPO2, you got to go to IPO3. Mm-hmm. You get your IPO3, you want to go to a qualifier. You know what I mean? You want to go to nationals. Like there's always incent- – you're always incentivizing to get better. Mm-hmm. With police dogs, you incentivize to get to the basic standard because that's what keeps you on the street. Yeah. But at the same time, we're trying to get these dogs deployment ready and like that's where i think the perspective of sport trainers comes in is like no no no, we're not ready yet like yeah we met a basic requirement but there's stuff to do we got to get better we got to improve and i think when that that's something that the police dog side of the world can learn from the sport dog side of the world is let's incentivize improvement let's think about improving every year not maintaining that basic standard that should be like after your first year that basic standard should be a yawn Mm -hmm. it should be so easy to get Right. It's like, you know, it's like being at a PSA three and then somebody tells you once a year you have to go through and pass a PDC. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, OK, that's, you no know, like, I can do that. I can do my I can just open Warm up my crate door and let the dog do it while I sit in the car. Right. <laughs> you know, but when you're first doing it with your brand new dog, or your young dog, you know, like it's a challenge until yeah. you get through it. And then you get to a certain point. You're like, OK, you know, my dog would find that level fairly easy. So I think until we get to that point and on the police dog side of the world, you know, we're, we're always we're going to struggle a little bit with that. And I think that's something that, that we can learn from the sport dog side of the world. Yeah, that's awesome. Hey, we're out of time. But thank you very, very much for coming on. It's we'll been talk a, Australians for hours. I know. Right? <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's but. been an awesome conversation. I think this is probably one of the least amount of times that either one of us have spoken. Yeah. And it's probably one of the easiest amount of content that I'll have to edit afterwards. So fantastic. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad it worked out really well. And I was. It was a pleasure to talk to you guys. It's uh, technology is so amazing that you can uh, yeah. you, know, you can talk halfway across the world and um, hopefully this you know hopefully this year I'll get to uh, get to see you guys in person. Yeah, um, we're, so we we're have to figure out for everyone listening. We, we've got to find a time. Jerry's going to come out to Australia next year. We just have to figure out. We're going to make it happen. Gonna it's going to happen. And so obviously 
do some PSA stuff for us, but you'll be available for doing police training for anybody, police and military and whatever, whoever is around and people that are following you and into your stuff um, can get in touch and, and organize that for sure. Uh, so tell yeah, people, so, yeah, so go ahead. My, um, my podcast gives me country by country like download so I can see who's listening. Mm-hmm. And I just want you to know that you're in third place to Canada. So <laughs> got, That's embarrassing. Got work to do, right? Yeah, well. Canada's ahead of you. Yeah. Uh, of course, the United States is, is is first in terms of downloads, but you know, like you gotta you know, you gotta get with it, and, and you know, and and Sweden is actually catching up with you. Sweden passes you guys. Really? You know what I mean, like that. It's actually inter- it's, it's interesting, Jerry. You're saying that because the United States is our like obviously Australia is a huge audience for our show, but America, I think by the end of the year, possibly they will probably overrun Australia. Yeah. Really, I, I mean, I love listening to your show. I hope uh, we Thanks. can uh, push this out on uh, on social media because I listen. To, I listen to you guys talk all the time because it's one of, in my opinion, one of the more cerebral uh, podcasts out there. It's you know, it gets you thinking. You have good guests on. You ask really good questions. So I think uh, I think everybody in the states should should start listening. So Thanks, once man. we. Uh, uh, post this out there and, and get it going. I'll I'll push it out on my social media pages too because I ho- hope you grab a bunch more listeners here. And thanks, uh, dude. In the really States. appreciate that. Yeah, very much appreciate. I sometimes That's awesome. get I sometimes get really intimidated. Like actually, you did to me one time after Bart was on, and you sent me a message like, "Oh, you, sh- you should have asked this or it was something." And I was like, "Oh fuck, Jerry Bradshaw's listening to my podcast." <laughs> 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 like, yeah, I get, yeah, I get um, intimidated. You know, I would- I love I love listening to that stuff. No, Actually, Sean had some glowing things to say about you when he was out here. He said that we'd love you and get along great with you. He said you've got a wicked sense of humor. And he said exactly the way you guys behave and carry on. Jerry's like that himself. He said he's uh, super smart. He's, he loves training dogs and he he loves having a good time as well. So we're really looking forward to seeing you. Um, yeah, we just have to figure on, out. On the strain soil. Figure out when we can do that. But your podcast, which I love too, it's, as I say, it's my every Tuesday morning. Controlled Aggression podcast, right? And the book, and the book as well. Yeah, yeah, and and the book of which the podcast is uh, is derived uh, from from that name, uh, Controlled Aggression. Uh, it's out there. You can uh, if you go on our uh, website for our podcast, controlledaggressionpodcast.com, You can see all the links back to my business page, TarHillCanine.com, to the book, to uh, all our social media accounts are there, and you can uh, d- download the podcast right from from that site, or go on iTunes or Google Play to listen to it. Awesome. Jerry, thanks very much for coming on. Oh, absolutely. Pleasure. Yeah, it's absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for your time. Before no, I, had... I was just going to say, great. Thank you very much for having me on. My pleasure. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, you can do that via Patreon now. We have our own Patreon. Go to patreon.com, type in the Canine Paradigm. Three bucks a month will get you access to extra content that we're doing. And we'll probably record this week, I guess, the next part for that, which is going to be about the triangle. So if you want to learn about that, jump onto Patreon and do that. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can do that via Facebook. Uh, We are the Canine Paradigm on Facebook. That's it. Glenn, music. <laughs>